We're in this, in this series called All the World's a Stage, and we've been talking about getting honest about our own dishonesty and just being real and being authentic. And All right, so every week I've been starting off with kind of a confession of a pastor. Are you ready for another confession of a pastor? Are you ready today? Can you handle it? I don't know if you can. I don't know. All right. Here's the confession of a pastor for you today. Throughout most of my life, I have struggled with just kind of this nagging, taunting voice that whispers in my ear. And here's what it is. Are you ready? You will never be good enough. You ever heard that voice? You'll never be good enough. You're not good enough. There's just been kind of this feeling of, of inadequacy I've battled in my life, just struggled with that in so many different ways. I'll share more with you about that. And I know that's a heavy way to start this talk off today. This is a, this is a heavy series, right? It's a heavy series. We're getting real about some things that we battle with in our own life. We want to be a church that's real. We want to take these things off right here, these, these masks, and we want to be real. We're so, we're so prone to wearing these masks because we don't want to let people in. We don't want to let people see the real us because we're afraid, and I've been afraid many times in my life that if I take that mask off and I actually let people in, they're not going to like what they see. And when they don't like what they see, they very likely may just reject what they see. And so there's this real temptation to never really let people in. And, you know, I've struggled with this kind of taunting voice and that, that whenever I've wanted to do that, you know, or whenever I've done that, you know, you're not going to be accepted. Or, or do you remember those things you did whenever you were a teenager, those things that certainly didn't honor God? Or do you remember the things or you think about the things that you're struggling with right now? And here's what I hear with that. And that's who you are are that's who you are and you kind of hear that voice that nagging voice and when you hear that voice here's what that voice when you're battling with that voice as I battle with the voice here's what it makes you want to do with my personality what it makes me want to do is withdraw and I can kind of isolate myself and I withdraw and I don't want to let people in because I certainly don't want to take a risk I don't want to risk things I don't want to risk or, or attempt to do things. I don't want to risk in relationships because, well, that might mean that I just might get hurt, especially if I have to take the mask down and they don't like what they see. And so I, I can struggle with that. I was, a, I was a kid who never, ever wanted to raise my hand and be called on in class. I was just terrified if my teacher ever would, would, would call on me. I never felt like I had anything positive to contribute to the conversation. I never thought like I was, uh, that I was smart enough to say anything that would contribute. And, and, you know, you would think that would be something that would only kind of plague me maybe in grade school or maybe in high school. But whenever I went off to college at Howard Payne, I felt the same way. Whenever I would go, and I went there to, to learn more about the pastorate and learn more about ministry, I never felt like I could be a pastor. I never felt that. I, I dropped classes because I didn't want to ever do public speaking. I dropped a preaching class because I thought like, I don't have anything to say. I don't have anything good to say. I mean, those voices that just kind of, they just kind of taunt you. And, and the other thing we do, if we don't withdraw, what do we do? We wear this. We don't want to let people in. We don't want to let them see the real us. And we don't want to be vulnerable. We don't want to, we don't want to in any way be authentic in any kind of way. Because, you know, and here's the deal. When you wear this and you go through life wearing this, and that's kind of been your MO. And many of you know what I'm talking about because you wear the mask, right? And when you wear that mask, you often feel trapped. You feel hopeless. You feel like you can't really take that off because, again, 
you're just afraid. There's a fear that goes along with this. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about because you have heard that little voice that is whispered in your ear so many times and so often whispers in your ear, you know, and, and I'm just saying, I've never felt good about myself in most areas. I especially never felt good about myself or good enough to be a pastor of a church, much less a growing and thriving church. You know, oftentimes I'll hear, you don't deserve this. How, how could you be a pastor of a church like this? And I've battled with that kind of internally, okay? Those are some of my feelings of inadequacy that I struggle with and some of my identity issues that I've, I've battled with in my life. And, and uh, you know, and, but there's also some other contributing factors, okay? W- one, for me, I've actually been told this by other members of the clergy. I've been told, you don't really look like or seem like a pastor, I've been told that. Some of you are glad about that, okay? But, but whatever a pastor is supposed to look like, I've been told you don't look like one. You don't look like a pastor, all right? I've heard that, and there was one particular occasion whenever we had just started EVC. I was really new in the ministry. I'd, I'd never been a lead pastor. I'd always just, you know, served in other roles, and I was not sure about anything. I was so just, just no confidence in myself. But I went to visit someone at the hospital, and I found out in my inexperience that one of the perks of the pastorate is free hospital parking. Boom. Okay? And so I'm like, I can do this, man. I'm going for something free. I'll save me a dollar for sure if I can save a dollar. And so I found out, though, you have to go and you have to sign up for that. So I went into the clergy's office there, the chaplain's office. I filled the paperwork out, turned it in, and and one of the chaplains came out. He looks at the paperwork, and then he kind of gives me the once-over looking at me, and he says, you're a pastor? I'm like, yeah, what does that mean? Yeah, I'm a pastor. It's not, guys, it wasn't like I was in short shorts or anything that day. I was in business casual clothes, but he says, you're a pastor? And I was like, internally, because this is how I am, I was like, yeah, and I'll be glad to introduce you into the five-fold ministry of Jesus if you want. <laughs> Perhaps I'll lay hands on you in Jesus' name. How about that? That's what I was thinking. Now some of you are going, now I get it, why he doesn't look like a pastor, okay? And so I've been told that. One time I went to visit one of you in the hospital over in Dallas. I had the clergy parking sticker on my way out. It's like this happens to me all the time. The guy who's, you know, I'm trying to get out with the clergy sticker there. He says, you're a pastor? I'm like, what is the deal, man? And he said, well, I don't know. He said, "Uh, here's what I want you to do. I want you to fill this paperwork out. You write this down. Write your name and your phone number down. I said, okay, I'll do that. All right, Dr. Randy Miller, 682. Okay, I might have done that. I'm pretty sure that was wrong, okay? So not only do I not look like a pastor, and I've had people kind of tell me those things, and I struggle with inadequacy in that. Those are external voices. You know, I certainly have not helped my cause. I have done plenty of idiotic things as a pastor, okay? And I've, I, I mean, I help my, my cause in this. I oftentimes do dumb things. And some of you know about this, but also early on um, in the pastorate there, uh, one of you, I went to the hospital again, and one of you gave me one of these little vials of like, what the, it's anointing oil, okay? And one of you gave that to me, and it, and it has this beautiful scent to it. There's no healing power in it, but we take it in as the elders of the church, we're called to pray for people and put that on them. And so that's what I did. And so I opened it and I smelled it. I tightened it back up, but not tight enough. I put it in my front pocket. 
I was wearing khaki pants on that day. Whenever I got out of my truck, I looked down and realized that all the front of my khaki pants was a big oily stain. All I could hear in my voice was Pastor P pants. That's all I could hear, okay? I'm like, oh my word, what am I going to do? I'm all the way down here. They're expecting me. I can't go home. And so I just walked in backwards, okay? prayed, I got to go. I'm out, okay? But say, I'm always doing things like that to, to just, you know, to not help my cause. And as long as I've been in the ministry now for over 25 years now, I've always heard you're not good enough to do this. You're not good enough. You'll never be good enough. Your best is never good enough. No matter how hard you try, no matter how hard you go at this, you know, and, 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 and just think of the things you struggle with now, even as a pastor, you'll never be good in it enough. And whenever that is the case, whenever I listen to those voices, that's when this comes up. That's when I, I, I don't want to let people in. And I don't want to be vulnerable and I don't, want to be, I don't want people to really know me. I don't want to be in community. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? There are a couple of major reasons that people wear these masks that we've been discussing. They wear them, you know, whenever they come to church for a few different reasons. They wear them, we've been looking at kind of spiritual pride or spiritual arrogance as we've looked at the Pharisees some. And we've talked about how they wear the mask and they don't want to let people in to see the real them because they're pride and they're proud and that they have this arrogance about them but the second reason that I we've been hitting on that for a few weeks but the second reason I really believe that a lot of people wear these masks is what we're going to call shame because there's a shame that we kind of walk with we carry ourselves with this shame and maybe you've never even thought of it in these terms now a few weeks ago I talked about guilt and we talked about the antidote to guilt and when we looked at David's life and how David whenever he carried that guilt with him he had done something sinful that continued to build upon itself and the antidote to guilt was what coming clean with God confessing our sins before our God who loves us and that weight is lifted off and we don't deserve the forgiveness and the grace that he gives us. There are still consequences that can follow us in our lives, but at least we have that spiritual release of coming clean with God. So guilt and shame are very similar. They're not exactly alike though. They're kind of like these cousins that kind of feed off of one another. Guilt is a lot of times about a specific event or a behavior that you've done and you feel guilty about that and sometimes I don't want to say guilt but sometimes like conviction the conviction of God is a good thing in our lives that leads us to live holy life a holier life and to confess things before the Lord but shame on the other hand is this shame is more about our identity Shame is how we often carry ourselves. It's more about who we are or who we think we are. Guilt is about, I did something bad. Shame is this thought, I just am bad. Are you following me? They kind of feed off of each other, but a lot of times shame is this, I have no worth. I have nothing of value to offer. I'm worthless. And it's this pernicious lie that our, that our enemy, Satan, just, just completely just feeds and whispers into our ears. You're, you're of nothing of value. Nobody values you. You have nothing to offer. You have no worth whatsoever. And so many of us, if we're honest, we have bought into the lie. 
We believe the lies of the enemy, and, and it's a malicious lie that affects us as if, as if it were actually true in our life. And so we often live with that kind of voice whispering in our ear on a regular basis. And so what do we do? We wear the mask. We won't let them down. We won't get in a life group. And if we are in a life group or if we do community with others, they don't know the real us because we're afraid. We're afraid because we bought into the lie. A lot of times, here's some things, some faulty ways that, we, that, that this just gets perpetuated in our life. It's oftentimes by what others say about us. You know, write that down. That's a good thing to write is what others have to say. For many of us, our worth is based on what others say, right? Uh, you don't look like a pastor. Well, that, because that guy said that, that must kind of just be the way that it is. Well, this one's really rough for those of us who struggle with being people pleasers. And some of you know very much what I'm talking about. You know the story. Some of you grew up in a home where good things and were spoken over you and there was good encouragement for you and you felt good about yourself and that's been a good thing in your life. Others of you though, and far too many have grown up in a, in a home hearing things like you're stupid or, or you'll never be good enough or you're no good or you know why can't you be more like your brother or why aren't you more like your sister you know or you weren't even supposed to be here you were an accident you know we call you the accident child or whatever and you've heard that and and so you know uh, you, you've struggled with this and when you did make a mistake you've carried that in your life and 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 rather than because you know we all make mistakes right and you know what we end up saying we say in those moments where we we make our mistakes or we do sin in our lives, we say, you know what? They're right. I am no good. I am worthless. If you're like me in this struggle, someone says something good and you feel good, right? You feel really good for a while because uh, for many of us, our identity is based upon what others say about us. If someone is critical though, if someone has one word to say that's critical, it can even be people who love us that maybe speak something trying to help us. We're awfully defensive, right? And we won't let others even speak into our lives. If someone is critical in any kind of way, we feel like the biggest loser ever and we can't let that comment go. No matter if they've said dozens of good things over us, what do we often hang on to? The one negative thing. And we rehearse it over and over and over again. And we try to justify it and we try to work it out and we play those tapes, you know. And, and now another common lie, if you're taking notes, is this, that we believe our worth is often based on our past experiences. Our past experiences. In other words, what happened to us in our past? And this can be a positive experience, okay, that you had. Maybe you achieved some great things in your life and your whole identity is wrapped up in the things that you achieved, okay? Only problem with this is that when those things maybe are removed from our life, our identity is now left in a crisis. And this is kind of what happened to me. Because I grew up as an athlete and I was always very athletic and I always excelled in sports and I did really well in football. I did really well in baseball. I could hit a baseball. I could, you know, I, I, it just came naturally for me. So as a child and as a teenager, as I excelled in those things, that's what I heard all the time is you are a great athlete. You're a good athlete. You're good. And you know what? For most of that time, I felt good about myself. Then something happened. I went off to college and whenever I decided not to play football anymore, nobody was telling me I was good anymore. So I was left with an identity crisis. I must not be good then. 
And I was going into ministry and I was struggling with this. So it can be through, it can be a positive experiences, but whenever our identity is based upon even the good experiences, that can be a difficult thing. But flip it around if our worth is being based on our experiences. For some of you, it may look like this. Maybe you grew up in a home that was very dysfunctional. Maybe you grew up in a home where there was a lot of brokenness. And so you carry that shame of that. And you've, you've battled with that in your life now. And you hate to even think about that. And you know, or maybe you grew up poor and and so you kind of feel that you carry yourself with kind of this inferiority complex there or maybe you didn't make very good grades when you were a kid and so you struggle with that and you've never thought of yourself as being able to be smart or able to achieve anything maybe you had a dream for a great marriage but somehow your marriage that you had this dream for ended up in divorce and now you feel like you walk around with a giant d on your forehead right and you wear that shame and you're struggling with that shame. And maybe someone that you loved left you and you're battling with that. Maybe you have struggled with an addiction in your life and that has become your identity. I am an alcoholic. I am a drug addict. I am this. I am overweight. I am this. And, you know, and, and maybe you had some mistakes when it came to sexual morality in your life and and you sinned and you've asked God to forgive you but you can't get past the shame that you carry of your past experiences it becomes your identity and so we carry ourselves in shame for some of you terrible things maybe happened to you whenever you were a kid and not only has it done physical damage to you but for many it's left you with emotional scars and, and what is, what is a, a, something that I've seen as a pastor as I talk with people who have been through that? And what's so sad is so many of these victims who have gone through abuse by the hands of those that they loved and trusted, you know, they often believe, and this is something that breaks my heart when I talk to people who have been through this, they often believe that they've done something wrong. And so they struggle with that. Well, if I hadn't done this or I wasn't like this or, and you know, many of them believe that they never deserve to be loved or could never be worthy of love or of a pure kind of love. And so, so many who have gone through that terrible kind of hurt in their life can never move forward because of our shame. We never can take risk. We never want to move forward because of a level of shame that many of us, some of us, we just can't understand that. But I just need you to know that it's very real and there are very many people in this room here today and in every service we'll be in that battle with this battle with this. And if you don't relate to this, then I ask you to be praying for those that do. Some of you live constantly with this feeling of, I'm not pretty enough. I'll never be smart. Or I'm not smart enough or talented enough. Or maybe your, your dad and your mom never paid attention to you. Even when you achieved things, they didn't pay attention to you. Even when you performed well, they were so absorbed in themselves that they never, never came alongside you and encouraged you. And those are voices that you hear and they taunt you every single day of your life. That is a tool of shame that our enemy uses in our lives to keep us paralyzed from moving forward. That's what he likes to do. He wants us stuck in our past. He wants us staying in these places. That's shame talking. So what do we do when shame talks? We wear the mask. We put the mask on. 
We're never going to let anybody in. We're never going to get real. And so we walk, and we've been talking about hypocrisy, and we've looked at it from this idea of spiritual pride. And in a sense, we've learned that hypocrisy is is kind of this two-faced way of living, and we see that kind of in this sense of of it being, you know, um, as Jesus called it out in the Pharisees' lives. But here's what we also know is that hypocrisy can be something that we live when we're trying to mask our shame. I just can't be real. You know, when you hear all this and you think about all this, you know what it really boils down to? We're all kind of just a mess, aren't we? Would you agree with me in that? We're all just messed up. We're all kind of just a mess. And when we struggle with shame, it often feeds into negative and destructive behaviors because of that pain. We call this a cycle of shame. It's a cycle of shame. Since I'm bad and I'm worthless, I might as well just continue in a sinful kind of lifestyle. Here's kind of what a cycle of shame looks like. I have a pain I'm trying to deal with in my life. I don't know how to deal with it, so I want to cover this up, but I still have to deal with it. So what do I do when I'm dealing with the pain? I need to feel better, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to self-medicate. I need to anesthetize this in some kind of way. And so I'll do this looking for pain relief and comfort. But in this self-medication, there are often negative consequences that come along with this. And the negative consequences then perpetuate a feeling of shame. And then we're like, I did this again. Why do I keep doing this? And now I feel ashamed of this. And so now I, I've got to maybe make this better my Myself, so I'm going to try harder and maybe my self-control will, will be able to conquer this. And then what happens? We all know we experience it every January when we make resolutions. Failure happens again, right? And then when failure happens again, there's pain that happens again and the cycle kind of starts all over. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? It is a cycle of shame. So we're kind of just a walking mess, aren't we? When we realize this, if we'll get honest. We're kind of just spiritually impoverished. Would you agree with me? I mean, we're kind of just, uh, many of us feel trapped and held captive to shame. Or we feel held captive to hopelessness about these things. We feel held captive to sinful behaviors. So we just kind of keep going along with it. We feel trapped and broken hearted and weighed down and bruised and spiritually blind. And when we're feeling that, we wear these. We don't want to let anybody in. Well, listen to what Jesus has to say about this. Jesus, when he began his ministry, he was in the Jewish temple of his hometown in Nazareth. And he opened the scroll of Isaiah, which was prophecy about himself. And here's what it says in Luke chapter 4. And then we're going to go to John chapter 8. You can turn in your Bibles with me. Luke chapter 4, Jesus says in front of all of his hometown who's there. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for He has anointed me to bring, what's the the phrase, folks? Good news to the poor. Are we poor in spirit? I think we are. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. 
And then you know what Jesus did? He rolled the scroll up and with every eye, scripture says, looking right upon him, Jesus looks them in the eye and he says this, today this scripture you have heard has been fulfilled in me. That's why Jesus came. That's why he came. Folks, this is the gospel. This is the good news. This is the message of grace for those who are broken, for those who are filled with shame, for those who are poor in spirit and captives, those who are blind spiritually, those who are friendless, the ones that are lonely, the ones that are left out, the ones filled with condemnation and shame. Jesus said, you know what? I came for those people. Praise God. I came for people like that realize that they are broken and they are messed up. These are the ones that he said I came for. And you'll find this truth about Jesus over and over again. Do you know what Jesus was called? And it was meant as an insult to him. He was called a friend to sinners. They would say that with such scorn. Those religious hypocrites would scorn him and say, you're a friend to to sinners. How could you be a friend to tax collectors? How could you be a friend to prostitutes, gluttons? He was accused of being a glutton and a drunkard and, and, and hanging out with those who are sexually immoral. Jesus, what do we find in the Gospels? Jesus came for broken people. He came for broken people who were filled with shame. This is what the gospel message is all about. And so the religious establishment of Jesus' time, you know what? They rejected this. When he would talk these, these kinds of things and say these kinds of things, if you'll, if you'll keep reading, they, I mean, they wanted to stone him whenever he said these kinds of things. They drove him out. They didn't want to listen to this. All the time, these Pharisees, who were the, kind of the religious police of the time, all right, they uh, were so wrapped up in the keeping of the law, they even added additionally 600 more laws to be able to be kept. And they wore these masks of spiritual pride, and they rejected this message of grace that Jesus came with and as people who often struggle with grace will often do they criticized him for his grace they criticized him for his message of of grace and they would try to trap him and in one occasion in John chapter 8 we find that this is what's happening the context is Jesus is teaching a group of people in the temple. His ministry was at a pinnacle at this particular point in his life right now I mean, people were flocking around him because he's saying things that they've never heard before. He's bringing the, the, the scriptures of the Old Testament to life before them. And he's saying it's fulfilled within me. Jesus was right in the middle of one of his teachings in the temple area. And here's what the word of God says in John chapter 8, verse 2. But early the next morning... He was back again at the temple, and a crowd soon gathered, as it always did. And he sat down, keep that in mind, he's sitting down amongst them and he's teaching them. As he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught. Now read it with me. What does it say, church? Say it out loud. What does it say? In the act of... Oh, can we even say that in church? And what did they do? They put her in front of the crowd, is what it says. They put her in front of the crowd. Can you imagine this scene going down? Can you imagine a scene like this going on in church today, like maybe right here? 
Maybe if, as I'm trying to just teach the word of God and teach the words of Jesus and someone's caught someone in a sin and they just throw them down right here in front of you, you know? And this is what's going on in the temple there. Can you imagine the, the cruelty of these supposed religious leaders and how they treated this woman who was filled with shame? The, the names they must have called her whenever they barged into her house and caught her in the act of adultery is what Scripture says. You harlot. You hussy. Shame on you. And they grabbed her up And they parade her through the streets of Jerusalem down to the temple with people looking upon her with scorn and disgust. And and if the bedroom raid wasn't enough and the parade of shame wasn't enough, they drag her to the temple where people like her most likely are not supposed to be. They don't belong in places like this. And they weren't taking her uh, to Jesus because they wanted her to hear the good news. They weren't taking her to church, so to speak, because they were hoping that maybe she'd get her life changed in a powerful way, right? They weren't taking her so maybe she'd have an encounter with God and maybe something would happen. No, they were taking her to exploit her shame, to accuse her in front of Jesus and to even use her as a pawn to trap him in his words because they hated him and were jealous of him and they were all about their own spiritual pride. I've always found it interesting whenever I've read this passage of Scripture that they only dragged the woman down before Jesus. Have you ever thought about that? Isn't that interesting? Why not the guy? Where is he? Did he slip out the back door for a donut? Did he hear the clip-clop of them coming up on their camels to come get them? Was he maybe in on it? We don't know. Scripture doesn't say But she was thrown down on the ground in front of Jesus. And they say piously before him, Teacher, they said to Jesus, This woman was caught in the act of adultery. And the law of Moses says to stone her, What do you say? And they were trying to trap him into saying something that they could use against him. So she's thrown down at his feet. This trap is a brilliant trap. I mean, they were clever coming up with this. They're posing a question that puts this trap of either he's going to be compassionate and he's going to lose credibility with those who are down and out, those who are broken, those who are struggling, you know, uh, or he's going to lose credibility because he's not going to follow the Mosaic law and he's going to go against that and, and he's not going to adhere to God's holiness and God's justice. It's this tension of God's justice and God's grace that still oftentimes we battle with today. Either way, he answers. They think they have him trapped. I can just see him kind of smiling and cutting smirks at one another there, looking at one another, glancing at one another, maybe low-fiving when nobody's looking, right? We got him now. We got him now. People are probably at this point scampering about to get rocks to be able to kill this woman. The voices are accusing The voices are condemning. The voices are shouting, shame on you, shame on you. Stone her to death, stone her to death. And everyone is looking to see how Jesus is going to respond. And then this verse six, this really stands out to me. Jesus doesn't speak yet, but you know what he does? Look at what it says he does. What does he do? 
He's seated. Remember that? He's already kind of low. What does he do now? The woman's down before him in front of all these people. What does Jesus do? It says Jesus stooped down and he begins writing in the dust. He stoops down. Did you see something about this? Jesus, the Son of God, comes down to the level of this sinner. He doesn't stand over her. Do you see that? He's not standing over her. Wouldn't you think that maybe that's what he would do whenever he's seated is he would stand up? I just had a head rush when I stood back up. Sorry about that. Okay. He's, he's down low, right? He comes down low, you know, and I've always wondered what in the world is he writing in the dust? Have you wondered about that? Man, I wonder about that. We don't know what he was writing. If you think you know, you don't know because it doesn't say, but I've always speculated. I've said this before. You've heard me preach. Some of you have heard me preach this. Is he writing Pharisees or jerks? I don't know. (laughs) Is he writing names of girlfriends of Pharisees? It's kind of what I like to think. We don't know. Is he just maybe just taking a moment to doodle in the ground so all of the eyes of scorn would be off of this woman and now they'd be on to him. Wouldn't that just be like Jesus? Just to take this attention off of her. We don't know what he wrote, but we do know what he said. And I want you to see, as this posse of hypocrites just grew continually impatient, it says they kept demanding an answer. So I want you to see this Jesus who is stooped down low with this sinner. What does he do? He stood up. He stood up. The stooping Jesus becomes the standing Christ. Amen? And he stands up. Nobody else stood up for this woman, so Jesus stands up for her. He stands up for the sinner, and he places himself between the accusers and the accused. They with their stones and their condemnation, and he with his grace and with his forgiveness. And in a sense, it's as if he's saying, you're going to have to go through me to get to her. As he stands up for her. And he goes on and it says this. And he said this. All right. Go ahead. Start throwing rocks. Let the one who has never sinned. You throw the first stone. And then Jesus dropped the microphone and walked off. Boom, right? I mean, he should have right there. That's powerful. They hadn't thought about that angle. I mean, what does it say he does next? Look, and then what did he do, folks? What did he do? He stooped back down again. He goes back down. Have you noticed those postures? He stoops back down again there with the woman and he lowers the boom. They hadn't thought of this. I mean, he has, he has answered the dilemma that they had put him in. He upheld the morality of the Jewish law because he didn't say what she was doing was right. He acknowledged that she was a sinner, but he, and he sas- satisfies justice. Go ahead, stone her then. Keep the law. But the one of you who is sinless, you go ahead and you get it started. 
Doesn't it make you what he wa- wonder what he wrote back in the, in, in the dust again? You know what I like to think? I, th- I think he wrote, booyah. <laughs> I gotcha. He wrote that probably. I would have, okay? But what if he was just taking the attention off of her again? Getting the attention back on him. And look at verse 9. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest. I think the oldest had the wisdom to walk off first. Or maybe he had the most sin to hide. Who knows? And only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. The Pharisees and the hypocrites, those wearing those prideful masks, they walked away, scratching their pious little heads again. And you could just hear the thud of the rocks just kind of hitting the ground. What are we going to do with these rocks now? I don't know. Just throw them down. And then you hear this deafening silence where they'd been probably yelling hurtful, terrible things, this ruckus as they're gathered around her in this temple. Now there was this deafening silence. It was quiet, and it was just this broken, sinful, shame-filled woman and the sinless, innocent, compassionate, and merciful Jesus, the kind of man that this woman likely had never met. And now I want you to see, then Jesus did what? Stood up again and said to the woman, Will you read it with me? What does he say? Where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? Where are they? She was a stone throw away from death. The reality was the only person who could have thrown that first stone was the one who was standing there with her. And maybe in the quietness of this moment, she's still hearing those voices ringing in her ears of all the things that were said to her. Those voices of shame, those voices of condemnation, the kinds of things that are said about loose women, right? She probably in some ways wished they'd maybe carried out this execution because now she was going to have to live the rest of her life in shame as they had shamed her before everyone. The voices were accusing and they were condemning her. And here's something to consider. Voices are constantly accusing and condemning. Do you know that, right? That's something to write down. They're constantly accusing, right? These voices of our past, these voices of our mistakes, the voices of criticism and condemnation, just like we talked about, those voices that I admitted to you that I struggle with, those voices that remind me of my sin, the voices that remind me of the things I've done in my past and I struggle with even some today, you know, the voice that says you'll never be good enough, the voice that says shame on you. The voice that says you're stupid, or you're ugly, or you're fat, or you're nothing but an addict. This is who you are. Those are the voices of the world, but even more, they are the voice. They are the voices of our enemy, our spiritual adversary, Satan, who is called the accuser of the brethren. He is the accuser of the brethren. And those voices can get stuck in our, in our heads. And he kind of encircles us like this roaring lion is what Scripture says. And he has rocks in his hands ready to throw these stones at us. And he brings our sins before God. And, and he says, do you see this person, how they continue to live like this before you? And how, he, how they're like this? And he's just like those Pharisees with these rocks ready to throw these things at us as we live in that cycle of shame and 
so many of us feel very hopeless about ever getting out of that and we're constantly discouraged by the voices, the voices that accuse, the voices that condemn. But you know what we find out about Jesus in this story? Jesus is the one who silences the voices, right? And he's the one that stands to defend us. Amen? That's what he does. See that in that story? Jesus silenced the voices of the condemners and the accusers. He's the only one that can do it. And just as he silenced her accusing voices, you need to know something, my dear brother and sister. He can silence the voices of your accusers. Just as Jesus stood up for her to defend her, he stands up for you and for me. Amen? He stands up for us. I want you to think as just as he stooped down for her, he stooped for us, did he not? Think about as he came for us, God himself becoming a man born in a manger. The shame of it, the scandal of it. Humbling himself to live as a man without sin, of course. But going to, as Scripture says in Philippians, not only death, but the humiliating death of the cross. Paying for sins he never committed. Taking all the shame that is ours and bearing it upon his shoulders that were sinless. Being criticized. Being called terrible, horrible names. Even being called a friend to sinners. Ultimately paying the price for our sin and for our shame. Where Scripture says in Hebrews, he endured the cross disregarding its, what does it say, church? Shame. Now he is seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. He came down low to our level so that we could be exalted to his. This is the exchanged life. And then he stood up and spoke on our behalf just as he stands for us. He acts as our defense attorney. 1 John says, my dear children, I'm writing this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an, what? He's your attorney. You have an advocate who pleads our case before the Father. He, Jesus Christ, the one who is truly righteous. He himself is the sacrifice that atones. That word is propitiates. It's a satisfactory payment for our sins. And not only for our sins, but the sins of all the world. He's our advocate. He's our intercessor. He's our protector. He's our shield. He's all those things we sang in that song earlier, right? All of these things. And he comes before those who are accusing us. He stands before the Father and he says, I have paid for that sin and that sinner in full. He is mine. She is mine. They are covered in my righteousness. You see, we've been talking a lot about the presence of God. He goes before us. He comes behind us, right? He's all around us. But you know what probably the most magnificent thing is, if you've not thought about this, is he dwells within us. You know that, that the Holy Spirit of God, if you are a believer, lives inside of you. inside of you think about what this means for you 
And He cleanses us. And He gives us a new heart. And and, and He exchanges our old heart for a new one. Even prophets of, of the Old Testament would talk about this great exchange. In Ezekiel it says, Then I sprinkled clean water on you. This is what He says over us. And you will be, what does He say? Clean. Your filth will be washed away. And you will no longer worship idols. You don't have to stay in that cycle of shame. Is what he says. And I will give you a new, what does he say? Heart. A new heart and I will put a new spirit in you. This is an incredible accomplishment of God. Amen? This is what our God has done for us. He gives us a new heart and a new life in this old life that's filled with shame, which is my identity. Now I have a new identity because now I'm in Jesus Christ and he is in me. I'm different now. You see, when God, if you're a believer, when God looks at your heart, do you know what he sees? He sees the heart of Jesus. When God looks at your heart, believer filled with shame, do you know what he hears? He hears the heart of Jesus. This is called imputed righteousness. It's been credited to your account. It's been credited to my account. Do I deserve it? I do not deserve it. That's why it's grace. When I place my faith in him, this is what he gives me. Nobody understands this idea of of this exchange of heart better than Todd and Tara Storch. In the spring of 2010, they faced every parent's nightmare whenever their 13-year-old daughter, Taylor, was killed in a snow skiing accident. They went through this difficult process, again, just a parent's nightmare, the, the process of, of burial and, and a funeral and questions and tears and all the things that go along with this. And while they were there at the, at the hospital and, and there, was, there was no hope for Taylor, it was what they were told, they, asked if, they were asked if, if they would like to donate Taylor's organs to those who were needy. And they said, yes, we would, because we know that's what she would want. A 13-year-old. And there was no one who needed a heart more than Patricia Winters. Patricia Winters was a a 40-year-old mom. She was a wife and a mother to two young children, and her heart had been in terrible decline for about five years. And, And as I watched this story, they talked about her ability was pretty much she was sleeping about 18 hours a day, didn't have much time, much energy to do anything else, and 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 couldn't be a mom to her kids in any kind of way. And when Taylor's 13 year old heart was placed in Patricia's body, she was given a new heart and a new place and a new start in life and through a series of events Todd and Tara the parents of Taylor were able to connect with Patricia and they said we just want to hear our daughter's heartbeat one more time I want you just to watch this short clip and I'm just going to tell you it's powerful okay but I want you to think about I want you to think about the new heart you've been given watch this The moms hug, heart to heart, for almost a minute. Then Todd joins them for a minute more. You know, I know this is, we should probably talk, but I need to hear her. Patricia retrieves her nurse's stethoscope. This goes around your ears like that. I cleaned it, okay? (laughs) 
you can hear it. It's so strong. Yeah. Oh yeah. She is very strong. I want him to hear too. It is the sound of life itself. It is Taylor's gift. I am so sorry. And I thanked you at the same time. I'm so glad you're good. Taylor's gift. Jesus Christ is our gift, amen? And that heart that we have when we place our faith in Jesus has been exchanged for the heart of Jesus. And when God hears our heart, he hears the heart of Jesus. That shame that we have carried in our lives, that's been our identity, that's not who we are anymore. When we are in Jesus Christ, he gives us a new life, a new beginning. That's why Paul would say things like this. Paul got it. He said, my old self has been crucified with Christ. Say it with me. What does he say? It is no longer I who lives, but Christ lives in me. It's a new identity. Paul knew the presence of Christ was living in him. It's called the exchanged life. This is the gospel. This is the message of God's grace, the exchanged heart. God's plan, listen, isn't just to get you into heaven. God's plan is to bring heaven also into your own life. And it comes through Jesus. Not only is Jesus for us and with us and around us and ahead of us, he's in us. And so because Jesus is in you, now check this out, okay? This is what God says about you now. He has brought you into his own presence and you are, what does it say about you now? Holy. And you are blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. Do we deserve that? No, we do not. But this is declared righteousness over you. Declared righteousness over me. That's why we sing songs like, how can it be? How in the world can this be? So because of the gospel, do you know what this means, folks? I don't have to wear this anymore. I can be set free from that. Because you know what? Now I am accepted, sealed, adopted, a son of God, a daughter of God, a joint heir with Jesus Christ. Those are all the things that he says about us over and over and over again. And so when Jesus stands with this woman, he says, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said, and Jesus said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. You see, Jesus fully knew that he would be paying for the sin that this woman had committed just earlier in just a matter of weeks. He says, go and sin no more. I don't condemn you. I didn't come to judge you. I came to receive and accept you. And so when those voices of shame come and whisper in your ear, When Satan, the snake, the father of lies, begins to lie and accuse and condemn us, 
you come at him with the word of God that speaks truth over your position in Jesus Christ now. And Romans 8, last scripture says this, Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? Who dares? No one. For God himself has given us right standing with himself. Who then will condemn us? What does it say next, church? No one. For Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us. And he is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand. And tell me what it says he's doing for us. What is he doing? Pleading for us. Can we just pray together? Let's pray. Lord, thank you because of the gospel we can take our masks off. We thank you for stories like this, God. We thank you for the exchanged life that we can have when we place our faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, you didn't call us to be religious. You called us to have a relationship with you. As our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, here's a beautiful thing that I just want you to see is that God loves you. And he accepts you. And he doesn't expect you to come to him and get your life all straightened out before you come to him. He just says, come as you are to me. You see, what he does is when you place your faith in him, he gives you the fresh start and the new life. So some of you have never placed your faith in Jesus Christ. You've never received this gift of a new heart. And he offers that to you today. You can't earn it. You can never be good enough for it. We are all filled with sin. And the Bible says the only one who can pay for that and has paid for that is Jesus Christ. He says that whoever calls on the name of the Lord, though, will be saved. Have you called on his name to save you? Have you believed on him in faith? Say, I'm not even sure what to say. You might just pray something like this to him. Just forget about the people around you and just get alone with with Jesus, just like Jesus was alone with that woman. Say, Jesus, I believe you died for me. Lord Jesus, I, I receive this gift of a new life and new heart as I place my faith in you. Jesus, thank you for new life. Will you be my Savior? Lord, we thank you for the great exchange, the exchanged life. I thank you, God, that we don't have to live in the cycle of shame, that you came to set us free. And I pray today that, Lord, we would walk out of here free indeed, with our masks off, giving great thanks and glory and honor to the one who has made it possible for us to be real. Lord Jesus, thank you. And it's in your name that I pray. Amen.